Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm Carolyn Jones, publisher of the Boston Business Journal, alongside my co-host, John Bernstein, regional president of PNC Bank. Thanks, Carolyn. Great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Our guest today is Jane Steinmetz, Managing Principal of the Boston Office of Ernst & Young. Jane chairs the Massachusetts Business Roundtable and serves on the Executive Committee of the Massachusetts Taxpayer Foundation. She's also engaged with numerous local charitable organizations, including the Boys and Girls Club of Boston and the United Way of Massachusetts Bay, among many others. Thanks, John, and welcome, Jane. It's great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. To start, perhaps you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your work at EY and your career trajectory. Thanks, Carolyn and John. Thanks for having me. And so, yes, I'm Jane Steinmetz. I'm the Boston Office Managing Principal of EY. And what that role allows me to do is have the distinct pleasure of working with about 2,400 of our employees, exceptionally talented professionals, working across all industries and all service lines. Working with them, I oversee our market activities and help empower our people to bring our purpose to life in both our communities and our markets. So how did I get this role? I started my career with EY about 10 years ago. I came over from a competitor and EY asked me to build out a tax practice in the financial services space. I have um, a lot of experience in financial services, particularly asset management. So they asked me to stand up a tax practice in financial services And then after three or so years, they asked me to also lead the New England financial services practice across all service lines, not just tax. And then about five years ago, they asked me to manage the Boston office. Now that was outside of financial services across all industries, all service lines. And it was a great opportunity. And I'm very thankful that I was able to assume that role. Jane, you've served in a variety of leadership roles throughout your career. What are some of the specific moments or accomplishments that stand out to you as important? Mm, Great question. When I reflect on my career, what really stands out in my mind is anytime I stepped outside my comfort zone. When you're going about your daily routine and it becomes routine, that's not what you remember when you reflect back on your career. What you remember is when you took a step and you were really unsure about your footing and you, you tackled something new. So when I reflect back on my career, anytime I stepped outside my comfort zone is what I remember the most and I remember it the most fondly. I would also say what I've learned is it's great to know your stuff and and try to get sharp in an area, but life in general and in particular at work is a team sport. So the best thing you can do, in my opinion, is to really tap the talent of an A-team, develop an A-team, work with that A-team, have a lot of collegiality among that team. And that's when I think you you succeed the most within your career as a team. What are some of the key lessons and insights that you've gleaned that you'd want to share? One of the lessons I've learned is recognizing that we all succeed when we operate as a team. Leaders should be very servient. They should be the type of individuals that recognize the power of a team and believe that their leadership role is to promote and motivate teams. 
and inspire each person within that team to bring their A-game to work. So Jane, let's delve a little bit deeper. Author and inspirational speaker, Simon Sinek, talks about the importance of an organization identifying its why. Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And why does anyone care? What is your why? What I love about Simon is he asks you to reflect on what it is about your organization, about your practice that inspires you. Let me analogize it to tax. I'm a tax partner by background. Reading a statute, looking at a regulation, yes, it's what I do, but it's not what inspires me. And so my YEY moment is an experience that happened when I first joined the firm. When I first joined the firm, probably about a week into it, a huge RFP landed on my lap and a um, company reached out to me to address this RFP. It was in an area that was not necessarily my fastball. So I immediately, within a new firm, had to figure out how to respond to this RFP and win it. Within a week's time, if not less, people came to the table. They, we figured out who, who had the right expertise for this RFP, and we developed a great team. When we went to orals on the RFP, we were completely synced up, and we won the work. And the client indicated as part of the reason was that she saw how well our team worked together, how collegiate we were. And they wanted that type of environment within their four walls, working with their team. They wanted to work with us because we were so synced up. We were gelling together so nicely. And little may they have known, we had just come together. But that is the EY culture. EY hires the brightest minds and encourages everyone to team to come together to solve our clients' most complex problems. And that first experience I had exemplified that, and that's my YEY moment. Following this theme, we know strong leaders often have strong opinions. What is something you have a strong opinion about? What gets you fired up? Two things. The first is you really need to bring the absolute best people to the table. Not your friend, not someone who sits down the hall, not someone that you always work with. It has to be the absolute best person for the project. And when you do that, it is amazing how naturally diverse teams are created. We always want diverse teams for a myriad of reasons, like eliminating blind spots and tapping into the best talent that's out there. When you really focus on bringing the absolute best talent to the table, I look around and it's always a diverse team. And so I think it's amazing how quickly that can happen. The other thing that can really fire me up is things go well. Sometimes things don't go so well. And when things don't go well, it's a lesson. It's a moment that everyone can grow. So you have to own your part in whatever happened. You can't deflect all the blame. You can't point fingers. You have to own it and learn from it. And if something doesn't go well and people start pointing the finger and deflecting all blame, that'll fire me up. <laughs> so Jane, this podcast has been described as a master class in leadership. So since this masterclass features you as our teacher, mm -hmm. 
What advice do you have for our listeners, whether up and coming leaders or the current C-suite? I would, I would give advice to up and comers and C-suite folks along the same theme, but differently. And it all goes back to that comfort zone. For up and comers, as I mentioned before, you have to jump outside your comfort zone. You have to take measured risks in your career. Measured risks. You know, you have to balance the risks and the rewards, but you can't allow complacency to seep in. I personally believe you have to always continuously grow and challenge yourself. For the C-suite, you need to give people that chance. You really need to allow people to jump outside their comfort zone and challenge traditional notions. Oftentimes, when it comes to a role, someone with X, Y, and Z experiences has always had the role. And therefore, that's what you're looking for. Well, I would challenge if that, if X, Y, and Z, you know, the, the traditional skills for a role are actually requirements or preferences. And it, it could go across a whole host of examples. But one simple one is someone will say, oh, no, you have to have 20 years of experience for this role. Do you? Maybe you don't. And maybe we're holding back talent that's more junior that would be just fine in that role and would have a chance to kind of flex their skills. So along those lines, I think we have to really challenge C-suite individuals, executives, in terms of the degree to which they are fostering an environment that gives people a chance to step outside their comfort zone. Yeah, that's terrific advice. And, and really everything, it is a masterclass. So we appreciate the words of wisdom that you're giving. It really cuts across all platforms. So on that same note, as a, you're a trailblazer yourself, the first woman to lead an office for a big four accounting firm in the Boston area. So that being said, how can we better support the advancement of women? And do you have some advice for women or perhaps for all of us on this subject? Mm-hmm. That is a question that we could probably spend a day on. <laughs> the, there's uh, one simple piece of advice I often give to both employers and employees. It's, it's what I always say is it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street to trying to help advance women. From the employer perspective, I always say ask, don't assume. When an opportunity comes up, when there's a role, when there's a project, sometimes individuals will instantly think, oh, this this woman just had a baby. She's not going to want to do that. Or this woman is going through X, Y, and Z. She might, you know, I don't, I don't think we would want to um, burden her with this particular experience or job. You just can't do that. You have to ask. You always have to ask the individual. And by all means, give them an out. You know, maybe it isn't the right time, but you have to ask. Because what I've found in those situations, and oftentimes, the woman is raising their hand saying, yeah, I, I definitely want to do that. Sometimes they say, no, this isn't the right time, you know, but keep me in mind in a year from now. But you have to ask, don't assume. And as I mentioned, it was a two-way street. From an employee's perspective, you have to speak up. People can't read minds. So if you want a certain career path, if you want a certain op- opportunity, you have to speak up. Yes, it's hard to read minds. <laughs> We are not mind readers. 
Speaking of leadership, PNC is a proud sponsor of ENY's Entrepreneur of the Year program, which for 35 years has recognized a cohort of leaders that ENY describes as unstoppable entrepreneurs. Could you tell us a little bit about the program and EY's investment in entrepreneurs? Well, we appreciate your sponsorship. It is an amazing program. Uh, EY has always been incredibly supportive of entrepreneurs, and we realize the critical importance of entrepreneurs in our business ecosystem. When you think about it, entrepreneurs are really solving some of the world's most critical issues today. So we have to foster them any way we can. So the Entrepreneur of the Year Awards program is one of the preeminent competitive awards for entrepreneurs. The program engages entrepreneurs with insights and it connects them to peers and importantly, an, an ecosystem that supports their growth. We bring the entrepreneurs together with their peers, but also lenders like PNC or investors or service providers and attorneys and whatever it might be. And so they're, they're surrounded by that ecosystem. The Entrepreneur of the Year is really the first and I would say only truly global awards program of its kind. It celebrates entrepreneurs through regional efforts like in New England, but also on a national scale and on a global scale. It's we're in more than 145 cities and we're in over 60 countries with this program. What we do is we identify entrepreneurs and the nominees are evaluated based on six criteria for this awards program. The six criteria are entrepreneurial leadership, talent management, degree of difficulty, financial performance, societal impact, and building a values-based company. Then the entrepreneurs compete regionally, like in New England, and then those regional leaders compete on a U.S. or country level. And then the country winners go off to globally compete. And I will say it is not all about the winners. It's about the participants because the participants, whether or not they win regionally at U.S. level, each participant gains a ton by being part of this program. They're able to amplify their message, talk on a broad basis about their product or service, and receive support from that ecosystem that I mentioned. We also launched Entrepreneur Access Network, and that is specifically designed to address challenges faced by Black and Latino entrepreneurs, those that have we have found historically been denied access to funding and, and effectively shut out of traditional business networks. We're in our second cohort and we have nearly 100 Black and Latino CEOs nationwide who are really just blazing a trail, leading startup B2B, B2C companies across all sectors. Yeah, it's a remarkable program and the participants are incredible and inspiring as well to read some of their stories and see some of their success. Mm -hmm. Jane, are there other initiatives or community investments that you're really excited about? Oh, there are. And one that I'm very excited about is our Neurodiverse Center of Excellence. And so what we are doing is, and we can address this with um, the great resignation that's going on, the talent war, we have identified an immensely rich pool of talent that is underemployed or not employed. And that would be individuals 
who are neurodiverse. They may have Asperger's, they may have other things that makes it difficult for them to get through a traditional interview, eye contact, social cues, whatever it might be. So we've developed a program where we have what we call a super week and folks come in who are neurodiverse and we have more of a problem solving type interview process. And it has allowed us to identify exceptional talent, exceptional talent that is really helping us think creatively about how we're solving our clients' problems. And so this neurodiverse uh, practice is growing across the globe. And we launched one in New England about a year ago now. And it is by far one of the best initiatives that I have been involved in. And I am looking forward to continuing to grow this practice within New England. Seems like we can't have a conversation without talking about the pandemic um, because it has had such an impact. So that event and other events of recent years has really demanded more from all of us as leaders. It's accelerated and amplified some of the changes and challenges that were already underfoot for young and established companies, especially. So in your opinion, how has the office culture and workplace changed for better or worse? You know, what's here to stay? What does the future hold? I truly believe the ground is still shifting below our feet. I think time will tell. I don't know if anyone truly knows what the future is going to bring. But if I had a crystal ball, if I was to guess and predict where we're heading, I think it's suffice to say we're going to have less in-person time with more remote working. And I, and I think there's both positives and drawbacks to that. From a positive perspective, by having more of an ability to work from home, we obviously get more flexibility. We're able to better balance the demands of work with the home demands. It all blends. We're able to stay in the workforce. When you have a lot of demands coming at you at home, whether it's childcare, elder care, everything in between, if you have that flexibility to work from home, presumably it would allow you to continue with your career throughout those challenging times. And then when you come into the office, I do think everyone is looking for more memorable moments. So it's not coming into the office, head down in an office, door closed. People want more than that, which I think is good. Where it has drawbacks is I truly believe that virtually you interact with coworkers, but in person you make friends. And when you think about what encourages individuals to work with a company, it's their friends at that company. And so I, we need that in person to encourage stronger friendships at work, stronger mentorship and sponsorship relationships. The other fear I have is that as people have more of an ability to work from home, Certain groups that we're trying to advance and empower may choose to work from home and as a result, miss out of opportunities that would allow them to get promoted and, and you know, excel in their careers. And the, the two groups in particular are women who have more responsibility at home for childcare. That's been historically the case with women and that, that could persist. And then also underrepresented groups. If our environment is not inviting and welcoming to all, 
those that feel as if they're not fitting in may choose to work from home. So I think it's in, it's incumbent upon us to make sure we have a very welcoming, inclusive environment to draw all people into the office, not just some. Those are some great thoughts. It is a really complex topic. And right. you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but perhaps if you have anything to add, so many employers, you know, and you mentioned this as well, are grappling with the impact of the great resignation. What do you see as the path forward for employers in this climate? It's very hard. You know, it's just the law of supply and demand. We have a lot of demand and short supply. So the, one of the first things we want to do is really hold on to your current employees. And what I'm hearing more and more, and I do think everyone had a pandemic pause and thought about this a lot, is that employees are more inclined to stay with their current employer if they have a bright future. It's that simple. And so I think it's incumbent upon leaders and career coaches and the like to have those sit-down conversations with their employees to understand what their career aspirations are and help them chart out a path within your company for them to achieve those goals. And if folks are not having those conversations, if they don't see that bright future, yeah, they're, they're probably going to fall victim of the great resignation. And so I think it's incumbent upon employers, leaders, managers to really have those meaningful career conversations with their employees. Important and critical in this time. Sure. Go back to the, it's hard to mind read, but you also get a chance to figure out how directly to help right. as leaders. Exactly. In a similar vein, what are some of your observations on the economy and changes underfoot in our city and region? What are you optimistic about and, and what worries you? I'm very optimistic about the opportunities that Boston could seize. You know, when you think about Boston, it's this old historical city. It's rich with history. Yet, when you also think about Boston, it is a city that has time over time evolved with changing times. So I think Boston should focus on providing a very vibrant platform for the next big thing. And what is that next big thing? Well, there lies the challenge, right? But it could be crypto. It could be payment processing. It could be a novel financial product. It could be industries and products and services that emerge as a result of the quest to correct climate change. It could be our blue economy. So I just think Boston, and it's done this in the past, it has been an epicenter for life sciences company, for tech. It's, it has a history and experience in doing this. And as we emerge out of the pandemic, we have to poise Boston in the New England area to be that epicenter for the next big thing. And what worries you? Well, similarly, it's not catching that wave, right? So if we think about pre-pandemic, Boston, you know, it had swagger. Companies were flocking here, right? I mean, companies wanted to move their headquarters here. We do have life sciences booming in Cambridge. Like we have, we had that swagger. Coming out of the pandemic, are we going to regain that swagger? We need to. And so that's what worries me. We need to kind of rewind a bit and be that community, that business community, that platform to which companies want to come. Absolutely. And 
What's your call to action for your peers and others in the business community who are listening in to sort of regain that swagger? So when I think about peers, the call to action would really be public-private. So I would say it would be businesses, it would be government, it would be higher ed. I think we have to work together to create an environment where we can attract the absolute best talent. We can support entrepreneurs because we've seen our entrepreneurs in our community go from an idea to a mega corporation. And we need to allow Boston to be that platform for innovation. And I think that's going to take a public-private effort. So Jane, let's change the tone a little bit here. Um, Not only are you managing uh, an office of 2,400, and you've certainly got a a lot going on outside of work. So can you share with us a little bit, how do you find balance if you do? How do you have fun? How do you keep your batteries charged? Well, what's great is I do have a really demanding personal life. And so that forces me to keep balance because my kids will fact check me if I... (laughs) What you have four, I might add. I have four kids and two in middle school, two in high school. There's so much going on and I don't want to miss a game and I, I don't want to miss a school event. Do I sometimes? Yes. But I'm always trying to get to the games and trying to get to the cheer competitions and whatever it might be. And so it's it allows me to have that balance. And I find it spending time with my family and with my kids just immensely fun. I can't think of anything else that would be more fun than just hanging out with my family and kids and attending their sports events and school activities. So I, I absolutely love that. We always close with some rapid fire questions. So off the top of your head, what are you currently reading or watching? Okay, so I'm reading this book that just came out. It's called We Are All Whalers by Michael Moore. And it is a scientist who has uh, published a book about the plight of the North Atlantic right whales and how we can all contribute to their survival. So that's the book I'm reading. And then uh, Watching the Mead, great series. Oh my God, I love it. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Veterinarian which probably goes back to the North Atlantic right whales. I still have passion. (laughs) What's on your bucket list? Oh, so I'm not a good skier, but I want to ski in Switzerland. That's on my bucket list. I got to get there. (laughs) Where is your happy place in Massachusetts? Martha's Vineyard. Love MVY. Love it. And so many places there. I would say within Martha's Vineyard is my happy place. And finally, what's a wish you have for Boston? A wish I have for Boston. You know, as I mentioned before, I love Boston having that swagger, right? I love it. You know, you can say you're part of that. So I hope Boston emerges as the real epicenter of the next big development, the next big innovative idea. I really hope that that's what Boston gains in the not-so-distant future. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Jane, and for sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm John Bernstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones. And this is PNC CSPE, the language of executives. Our guest today was Jane Steinmetz, Boston Office Managing Principal at Ernst & Young. You can find CSpeak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston 
or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Subscribe at the Boston Business Journal, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speak.